Mark chapter 8. The title of this morning's message is A Little Goes a Long Way. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. A little bit goes a long way. We could, we could fill in the blank or we could, you know, talk about things that go a long way. A little bit of what goes a long way. A little bit of patience goes a long way. Right? Maybe a little bit of humor in a sermon goes a long way. You know, hey, preacher, like, lighten up a little bit. That might go a long way for you. Okay? Uh, a little bit of prayer goes a long way. A little bit of getting in your Bible goes a long way. Uh, courtesy. You know, you can fill in the blank. A little bit goes a long way. Well, what we've been learning in the Gospel of Mark of the last few weeks is that uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples in multiple occasions that even a little bit of food can go a long way. Right? So we read about the, the account of Jesus feeding thousands and thousands of people with, with what? Yeah, a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. And, and we discovered last week that it wasn't as though, you know, Jesus did it the way that we would do it, or at least the way that I would do it. We would, we would make a list of all the stuff and we would tell them, okay, set it all out, make sure we have enough for everybody. That's what we do in our house, right? We don't just, you know, go to the cupboard and, well, when we open the door, whatever's in there, it'll be enough, Right? No, we go shopping and we try to go, okay, we don't want to go shopping more than a couple of times this week. So let's make sure we have plenty of whatever for the next five to seven days. But the way Jesus did it is he just said, pass around this basket and pull out of there fish and loaves and distribute it. And it was just a never-ending supply from God. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us a little bit goes a long way. Little is much when God is in it. A little bit goes a long way. And he's going to do it again. He's actually going to do it more emphatically here when he warns them, his disciples, right after he feeds another few thousand people, he's going to warn his disciples about something that has to do with bread. How many of you like bread? You can tell from my spare tire that I like bread. I love bread. It's one of the things I like about the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas. There are lots of breads. All kinds of different breads. We like bread in our house. Right? Jesus is going to talk again about bread. He's going to bring up the subject of bread again. And we learn also in John's Gospel, and in Matthew's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel account, we get a little bit more of like filler in what, what it is that Jesus is saying. John has an entire chapter where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. This concept of bread is very important uh, for Jesus to communicate these truths to his disciples and to you today. So, follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read Mark chapter 8 verses 14 through 26. The Bible says, And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Hear? 
And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Now verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up. And he said, I see men. For I am seeing, seeing them like trees walking about. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently and was restored. And began to sing, see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, Father in heaven, would you open up our eyes to see not only the truth of your word, Father, to see you, to understand you and ourselves better. Father, that we, if not born again, if not saved, that you would save us if we here who, who are born again, Father, that we would see you clearly, that we would grow and mature in our faith, not to be bigger or wiser, but Father, to be ever nearer to our Savior and our Shepherd, Jesus. Let it be according to your will this morning as we study your word, as we wait upon you, as we listen for your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've learned that with Jesus, a little goes a long way. His disciples learned that. That when we go out with Jesus and there are needs among the people, a little bit goes a long way. Jesus multiplies. Jesus makes it happen every time. They've already learned that, but now Jesus is going to take this truth and he's going to turn it into a warning. He's emphatic here. They, they left the presence of the Pharisees. Remember that from last week? The Pharisees came out, verse 11 tells us, and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Give us a sign so that we can confirm that you are the Messiah. Verse 12 says, He looks at them, sighing deeply, why does this generation seek a sign? In other words, he's saying, I am with this generation. It is with this generation that the Son of God has come. That Emmanuel is here. That God is walking among his people. And this generation is looking for a sign? How many people are out there today who have been blessed by God beyond measure? And they're looking for a sign from God. It's like, really? A sign from God? Most of the time we don't see the goodness of God in our life because we're focused on the negative things, on the bad things. We just don't see the blessings because we're, we're focused on things that are not going our way. Jesus says to this crowd, no sign will be given, given to you. 
In other Gospels, the wording goes like this. Nothing, no sign will be given, given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. Now scholars disagree, but most of them agree that what they think Jesus is saying there about the sign of Jonah is that like Jonah had been swallowed by a big fish and was in the depths for days and then came out and preached a message of repentance, so Jesus will be, will die and be buried and raised again. And the message of his resurrection is that which is going to quicken the hearts of the lost people. So in essence, if that's true, then what Jesus is saying to the crowd is, you want a sign, you're going to have one. But even then, you won't believe. I will walk among you as the raised Christ. I'll have scars on my hands and on my side, and still you won't believe. So this is the attitude of the Pharisees, the doubters, the skeptics, the legalists. So he leaves them, his disciples go with him, they leave this crowd, and as they're leaving to go to the next place... Mark says here, he notes in verse 14, what the disciples were thinking at the time. They had forgotten to take bread on their journey away from the Pharisees and away from this area. This is important. Because he wants us to know how Jesus was seeing their doubt, their disbelief, and where they were placing their faith at the time. He says in verse 14, they had forgotten to take bread, did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. No more than one loaf. So Jesus, in verse 15, he was giving orders to them, saying, watch out. Watch out. Exclamation point. Beware. This is serious. This is not a passive statement. Jesus is concerned because he knows what they're thinking based upon there only being one loaf of bread in the boat. And there's probably going to be more people to feed and we're going to have to be fed and man. So Jesus says, beware. Why is this such a big deal? Because Jesus knows how insidious the temptation is to take into the Christian life not only things from your past, but things along the way in your future that threaten your spiritual health and vitality. The disciples were going with Jesus to the next place and they were thinking about where they came from. They were thinking about the prior situation. And Jesus knows their concerns. He knows their doubts. He knows their worries. And he knows yours too. Did you know that? And he cares. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod fall into both of these categories that I just mentioned. The Pharisees focused on the law of Moses, past, right? The law of Moses, the Old Testament, law of Moses, and strict legalistic living. The Pharisees were strict legalists. And Herod, 
Herod held out the hope for the Jews during this time. The hope of Jewish affluence and progress and power under Roman occupation. Now we can fall into this same trap today in thinking that there are politicians and movers and shakers who can advance our cause as Christians. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, beware, be careful, watch out. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod will mess up your life. And they don't go together with the Christian worldview. There are many Christians out there that think that we can have partnership with the leaders of this world because they can open doors for us and make things happen for us and provide things for us that are going to advance the cause of Christ. Ungodly means do not bring about godly ends. They don't. So Jesus issues this strict warning. He wants his disciples, he wants his church to know to be careful. The disciples were being taught by Jesus to trust only in him for their future. This is explicit teaching of Jesus. He's saying, I'm not one of many ways. I am the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They were being sternly warned not to place their trust in anyone else. By issuing this warning, Jesus is also distinguishing the Christian worldview from other worldviews or other outlooks. He is essentially saying that there is only one true life-giving loaf from which souls must partake in order to see and live And all other loaves bring death. Though in this life they may seem to be a delight to the eyes and good for food. They bring death. He knows that his disciples are thinking, what what are we going to do if we we only have this one loaf? How are we going to make it? So Jesus warns them for these reasons. In Galatians 5, 9, the Apostle Paul warns the New Testament church. He says, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little bit of legalism. A little bit of license, licentiousness. Will lump in the whole lump of dough. But here's the question we're going to consider this morning mainly. And that is, why does Jesus have to warn them? We know that he warns them. But why does he have to warn them? For the same reason that he has to warn us today. Primarily, because of the nature, first of all, the nature of leaven. Why does he use this word picture? Why does he use the metaphor of leaven? Now the disciples on the face of it would have understood what he was talking about more than we do because we don't use leaven really that much today. We usually just go to the store and we buy what? Yeast. 
right? To make our bread rise. We'll go buy yeast and we'll, we'll test it, make sure it's active. And then if we know it's active, we'll add it to, we'll make dough with it, right? And during this time, what people would have done and for, for years in Israel, what they would have done is they would have kept small pieces of dough that would leaven new lumps of dough. And so... We'll get into the, to the background of Old Testament Israel and what God did when he delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians and what he commanded them. But instead of yeast, back then, people used small lumps of fermented dough in order to activate the rising of bread. It was a rising agent. It was active. It was often spoken of metaphorically as a source of corruption. Most of the time in the New Testament... The word leaven is, is always in a negative sense because of how it affects the things around it. We're warned of leaven. Unconfessed sin. Sin that's not dealt with in your life or in the body of Christ. We also find that it was prohibited in Israel for the use of offerings. It was, it was not allowed to be part of an offering. That was symbolic. But it was required for the feast of unleavened bread. Which was celebrated in conjunction with the Passover. Because of the command of God to celebrate with unleavened bread. As to point back to the way God delivered his children out of the hands of the Egyptians. So it was required to commemorate what God had done. But it was not allowed in the sacrifice, in the offering. But why does God have to warn them? Number one, because of the nature of leaven. Leaven actively influences. It is not passive. It is at work all the time, like sin. Sin is always at work. The enemy is always on the prowl. Like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Leaven actively influences. It is not passive. It attaches itself to something similar to itself and it anatomically changes it. It changes it. It gives it life. It makes it grow. It multiplies the dough. It changes its host. Leaven is like sin. You can't treat sin like a pet. It won't sit on the shelf and leave you alone. You can't play with fire and not get burned. You can't play with sin. And so, leaven, by nature, is something that affects the things that it is around and that it touches. We learn also that leaven grows and expands. It doesn't stay the same size. It multiplies. It magnifies things. So Jesus is warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod because of how worldly ideologies work. If the church embraces liberalism, it's going to become liberal. It just will. If we start entertaining ideas that maybe the Bible is not the authoritative inspired word of God, that it contains errors, then we will dive headlong into that direction. And it will affect every part of our lives. We'll start treating sin like a pet. It's not a big deal. Because what God says about it is not really authoritative. You see how it works? 
It's just a domino effect. So Jesus is warning his disciples about it. Paul, Timothy, Titus, all talk about these things in the early church. To be careful. To pay close attention to yourself, Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Be careful. Beware. Throughout history, we've seen how philosophical, political, social, economical trends have influenced the Christian faith. We think that certain economical policies or worldviews will help advance the kingdom and so we buy into them wholesale, whether it be capitalism on one side of the world or communism on the other. This will advance the gospel. No, it won't. Jesus advances His cause through the church. He is the Lord of the church. He says, I will build my church. No political influencer, no king, no president, no mayor, no governor. Christ alone. The earliest defenders of the faith, the first century apologists, spent countless hours writing in opposition to heretical teachers and influencers. It's amazing. It's amazing that we still have their writings. Their major writings. They spent most of their time basically saying this. No. No, that's not Jesus. No, no, that's not the gospel. Let's go back to what the Bible says. Let's go back to the gospels. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what John made very clear in John 1. That in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was not created. He was one with the Father. His early apologists. An apologist simply means a defender. An explainer. Someone who explains the faith. The Christian faith. And as the Christian faith grew in the first century A.D., Two, three generations after the apostles died. As it's expanding just like wildfire under the persecution of Roman authorities. False teaching is attaching itself like leaven to the gospel. And religions, little splinter groups are being formed here and there. One of those apologists' name was Tertullian. Tertullian wrote specifically during his time around 145 to 230 AD. He wrote specifically to the Greek philosopher types. The Gnostics who would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and go, you know what, this has a a lot in common with Plato and Aristotle. It's pretty much the same thing. And Tertullian says, no, it's not the same thing. He says this, We Christians are forbidden to introduce anything on our own authority or to choose what someone else introduces on his own authority. Our authorities are the Lord's apostles. And they, in turn, chose to introduce nothing on their own authority. They faithfully passed on to the nations the teaching which they had received from Christ. And so we, 
should anathematize, that is to consider accursed, even an angel from heaven, if we were to preach another gospel. Now why does Tertullian say that? He's not pulling this claim out of thin air. He's quoting what? Galatians chapter 1. He's quoting Paul. Paul said it. So Tertullian is actually practicing and living out what he's telling his audience to do. But notice how much we need Tertullian today. When we say, well, you know what? We know what was handed down by the apostles. We know what people say the Bible says, but our group of religious authorities, whether it be elders or pastors in the church, we're going to give authority to a person in our church on our own authority. This is happening today all the time. All the time. We're going to elect a female elder or pastor. We're going to ordain them, lay our hands on them in our own authority because we are male pastors and we can do that. Tertullian says, no, you can't. Because what you have received is from the apostles. And the apostles didn't do it. And the apostles actually not only didn't condone it, they said, you are not to do that. But people do it all the time today. Churches do it all the time today. Because that's what happens when you introduce a little bit of leaven, a little bit of worldly philosophy and the trends of the time when you introduce it into your church. And guess what? Moms, dads, husbands, wives, when you do that into your family dynamic, the same thing happens. Same thing happens. And we do it all the time with the things we watch, the things we listen to, the time that we spend entertaining ourselves to death. We're doing the same thing. And Jesus says... Watch out. Beware. This is the way that leaven works. This is the nature of leaven. Secondly, he warns them because of the nature of humans. Not just the nature of leaven, but our own human nature. Is it not human nature to look back? To dwell on the past. Jesus says to his disciples, anyone, anyone who starts to plow and looks back, what happens? They cut a, a crooked line. He says, if you start with me and you look back and you're constantly looking back, you're not fit for the kingdom. You have to keep your eyes forward. But our nature, our sinful human nature is to do what? It's to look back. It's to constantly look back. So he warns his disciples because he knows what they're thinking. When they look down at that one loaf, he knows what they're thinking. They're thinking about what just happened. They just fed thousands of people. And before that, they fed thousands of people. And he remembers what they needed. They remember what they needed. And now they're looking down at one loaf and Jesus knows what they're thinking. When the Hebrews were coming out of Egypt... In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, I encourage you to turn over in your Bible. Second book here in the Bible. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 39. Gives us a really brief yet clear explanation of the beginning of this idea of leaven. As it begins in the Old Testament. 
when God delivered the Hebrews out of the hands of their captors. They were enslaved in Egypt. Verse 39, Exodus 12, 39. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. For it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This is the grace of God (laughs) on full display. And whether they knew it at the time as they celebrated it down the road in the future, this is why they celebrate. So they would know that God provided for them. That they had bread in the wilderness, but they left the leaven of Egypt behind. God was going to provide for them. And it tasted differently. And it had different properties. We've never had this before. This is weird. This is strange. So was the wilderness. And God was saying, but I have something for you. I am sending you into a place, into a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Mm-mm. They took bread, but they didn't take any leaven. That is, they had the ingredients to make bread, but they didn't take what was in Egypt. The activating agent. And this is going to be a challenge for them, for their in. The entirety of Israel's existence was looking back to Egypt. Man, really missed that situation. I mean, I, I know that what, was, what we lived on was not God's you know, provision. It was the Egypt giving us their crumbs. But man, I'd love to have the crumbs of the Egyptians right now because I'm tired of waiting on God. I am tired of being sustained on the things of God. I'd rather see it all there. And Jesus knew the temptation of his disciples as they see one loaf of bread in front of them. What a challenge it was. God had promised the Israelites a land flowing with milk and honey. And the temptation that they faced in the wilderness was to turn back. Let's just go back. To go back to Egypt in desperation. But God wanted to eradicate Egypt from their minds. Because he had delivered them from captivity. And freed them from the hands of their oppressors. He wanted them to experience the fullness of his love and his grace. But the Hebrews grew weary. They grew tired of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. And so they began to yearn for Egypt, remembering the leaven they had forsaken and wishing that they brought some of it out into the wilderness so that they could make that same bread they had in Egypt for themselves as they wandered around. Jesus knows that his disciples are going to be tempted by that same thing as they look forward to what it means to follow Jesus, that one loaf. Maybe if they had Herod's help, Maybe if they had the help of the government. Maybe if they had the mind of the legalist. The perfectionist. And Jesus says, beware. Be careful. Because that's not the Lord's plan for you. See, God planned to provide bread for the Israelites daily out of heaven. In order to nourish their bodies and their souls. 
That their souls would have developed a dependence upon the Lord. He was teaching them daily dependence upon Him. But it is not in our fallen nature to turn to the Lord each day for nourishment, is it? We're hoarders, man. We are soul hoarders. We like to go to church on Sunday and fill it up and hope it can get me to next Sunday. Or maybe we open up our Bibles every now and then and we feast upon the love and the grace of God and we don't open it again for a long time. We don't commune with God. We don't meditate on God's word. We don't spend time in silence and solitude depending on the word of God because daily dependence is not in our fallen nature. It's not in our human nature. We are selfish at our core. It's our fallen human nature to self-sustain to keep a little leaven around from our past and provide for ourselves so that we don't have to trust in God's daily provision. So here are some challenges for us. They're the same as they were for the Hebrews in the Old Testament. The first one is this, is that our past forms categories. Our experience in the past helps form our categories or our compartments of thinking. We think like this. Well, people are just flesh and bone. That's all we are. Really, our needs are mainly physical. They're mainly physical. And I, if I can be self-sufficient, I'm doing God a favor. Right? Self-sufficient. Our past forms our categories and usually our past tells us people are just flesh and bone. That's what the Egyptians were taking, or the Israelites were taking out of Egypt. We're just flesh and bone. They saw their loved ones die every day. They were well acquainted with grief and suffering and death. The second thing, our past establishes our boundaries. Just from trial and error, isn't that true? Our past establishes our boundaries. We say things like, I can never be free. That's probably what the Israelites thought when they came out of Egyptian slavery. We're talking about three or four centuries of slavery. I can never be free. Full freedom is a figment of my imagination. It's fiction. Or no one would ever love me like that. Maybe you felt like that in your past. No, no one would ever love me to provide for me daily as Jesus is talking about here as he shepherds his disciples. He warns them about not believing in Him and His provision and His love and His grace. We doubt that as well in our flesh. And then also our past determines our expectations. The way that we've seen things operate in the past, we might think nothing is ever going to change. Have you ever thought that? Nothing's ever going to change. These are things we think in our flesh. Or, I will never overcome this. I've never been able to overcome this before. I'll never overcome it now or in the future. I will always have to look out for myself. Self-sufficiency. These are some of the challenges that we have today. Amen? 
that we share with the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Jesus knows what his disciples are thinking. He knows what they are thinking about in the situation as they are leaving the region that they just came from. They're thinking all we have is Jesus and one loaf of bread. And they start thinking what's going to happen in our future based upon what's happened in the past. And this is all we have. But what they're not thinking about and this is why Jesus so graciously asked them these questions. Have you not, have you not learned anything? Have you not been paying attention? Jesus knows what they're thinking. In John chapter 6 verse 48, Jesus, in a culmination of his explanation of who he is and the hunger the physical and the spiritual hunger on the part of people, he comes to the place where he says this, I am the bread of life. He says, your ancestors, God provided, the Father provided manna from heaven. And unless, and, and unless you have me, the bread of life, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, that is, unless you believe in me, unless my body is broken and poured out on the cross, you have no life in yourselves. I am the bread of life. Now, he doesn't speak harshly to his disciples. He warns them sternly, but then he very graciously asks them some questions. In verse 17, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread. Now Mark doesn't say it here, but John does. And we know what is on Jesus' mind because of what the other gospel writers tell us that he said. As he's telling the disciples this, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? I am in the boat with you. You have an endless supply of bread. Why are you talking about not having bread? Because your eyes are on the basket, the loaf, and yourselves, and your past, and your abilities, and all of that. And it's clouding your concept of the future. And of your situation right now. He asked them these gracious questions. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you not get it? And by asking them these questions... He gets them to thinking. He gets them to thinking about what's our problem? <laughs> Why have we not seen it? And later on, in the next few verses, as we look forward to Mark, we see them get it. They get it. The Holy Spirit opens up their eyes. And when Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? They say, well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. And Peter says, what? When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So the last thing is this. Why does Jesus have to engage them this way? Because of their changing nature. 
Because they are on a journey. They're on a path. They're on a road. They are in the process of having their eyes fully opened. And Jesus seems surprised that after multiplying the bread on multiple occasions, his disciples still lack understanding. They should have understood the basic concept that a little goes a long way with Jesus. But even though they've seen it happen with their own eyes over and over and over, they don't understand yet. So he graciously asked them these questions because they were in the process of having their eyes open. The Holy Spirit was working on them. Jesus was working on them. They were in a process and so are we. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are in the process of being illuminated, sanctified, your eyes being fully opened every day that you walk with Jesus. This is why we teach and this is why we learn. This is why we come together on a regular basis because our souls need repetitive exposure to the gospel and to God's word. Amen? My soul does. Repetitive exposure. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't say to us, you know what, I am, I'm done. We've wanted to do that with other human beings that we're close to, right? We've sacrificed. We have waited. We have loved. We have poured out our hearts. And they're still not getting it. They're still not reciprocating. It's not sinking in. You just want to throw up your hands and go, I am, I'm out of gas. I'm done. Jesus, if he were only a man at this moment, would have thrown up his hands if he were a man like me, he would have thrown up his hands and left and said, I just can't. Can't do this anymore. But he didn't. You know why? Because he's fully God. Our creator. Intimately acquainted with our grief. He knows you. He knows me. He loves us. We are in repetitive, need of repetitive exposure to the gospel and every time we come to the throne of grace he meets us there he never says no not this time he's faithful and true notice that Jesus decides to heal this man in verses 22 through 26 in stages in two stages he doesn't do it all at once he could have he has before has he not yeah but he doesn't this time. He does it in two stages. And he asks the man questions between those stages. I believe this is a word picture. This is a picture Jesus is giving his disciples and everybody that's watching, including this man, a picture of what it means to be shepherded by the good shepherd. In verse 25, the Bible says, Then again, say it with me, Again. Say it with me. Again. Again. You stumble, you fall, you fail, Jesus will forgive you again and again. And every time you come to him, again and again, as long as it is today, called today, again and again, he will forgive you. Jesus will finish what he starts even if you are slow. This man has 
the spit and the mud rubbed on his face. Can you see? And he says, I can't. I can see people, but they look like trees. <laughs> Do you feel like that in your Christian walk? I think I'm getting it, but I'm still confused about some things. I'm not quite getting it yet. Jesus doesn't say to you, okay, I'm done with you. No, he says, okay, open up your Bible again. Read it again. Pray it. Meditate on it. Come to church again. Meet with that fellow brother or sister again. Even when we're slow, Jesus will finish what he starts because he's faithful and he's true. The old hymn says, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. It never wanes. It never recedes. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. It is a fountain that never ends because of who he is. That fountain is not dependent upon who you are. That's why it's called grace. So Jesus warns his disciples, don't bring that legalism with you. Don't bring that legalistic past. Don't bring that political persuasion with you. It's just the one loaf. It's just me. And I'm enough. And like the leaven of your past that will not leave you alone if you play with it, when you abide in me, I won't leave you alone. My blood will always cleanse your sin. The leaven of sin and doubt and self is pervasive. It is not to be trifled with. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul warns the church. This is what they're caught in. Basically, there's a church. They are unwilling to judge sin within their midst. There's a member of the body who is committing uh, adultery, committing sin. It's open. Everybody knows about it. And they're just like, eh, okay, whatever. We don't want to confront it. We don't want to judge Whatever. Paul says to them, you are a wicked group because you have sin in your midst and you're not taking care of it. You're not eradicating it. You're playing with it like it's a pet. It's not a pet. It's like leaven. This person who needs to be cast out of the community of faith so that God can deal with them, so that they can be restored, you are keeping within the body and it's affecting like a cancer each person in this community. That's what sin does. If you don't deal with it. If you don't confess it. And he says, do you not know? This is what leaven does. He says to them, clean out the old leaven so that you may become a new lump. Jesus is literally saying to his disciples as he brings this word picture of this bread, he's saying there's a new way. There's a new way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't bring that stuff from the world in here. Clean out the old leaven. Leave it. And follow me. Leave it. Come to the cross of Christ where the grace of God abounds even more. Where it is even more pervasive. You must agree with God that your sin grows like leaven. When you come to the cross, you must agree with God of what your sin is. It's like leaven. 
You're not going to play with it. You're not going to harbor it. You must agree with God that your sin grows like leaven and that without Jesus your life will be overtaken. Many people think that they're sitting on a fence and they can choose Jesus at any time. That nothing gets worse in their life. Nothing really gets any better. All the while, sin invades and overtakes. You must call on Jesus. You must confess to God that your sin is not small. That it's not insignificant. You must accept the fact that your sin cost Jesus his life. That he died for you in your place. And you must accept him as your Savior and Lord. Will you do that today? If you've never received him? Will you come to the cross with that attitude? And agree with him. That your past is your past. That you don't want to wallow in your sin. You don't want to treat sin like a pet. Will you stop treating sin that way? Will you come to him? The Bible says that he will receive you. If you come to him. If you surrender. Your life to him. A little bit goes a long way. A little bit of sin. A little bit of leaven. Jesus says. Beware. Watch out. But likewise. He also says in Matthew 17, 20, a little faith goes a long way. Why? Because of who you're placing your faith in. It makes all the difference. A little bit of faith. He says even the faith of a mustard seed, tiny bit of faith in Him changes everything. Trust Him today.